Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. So happy you are here with me again today. And we are speaking about a very challenging topic today. At least for me, it's very challenging. Don't know about you, but when I become familiar with people, and that can be quite quickly uh, happening, then I use words such as man and guys, how are you all doing? And I become very informal, easygoing, and so on and so forth. Now, I had a conversation with Dr. Jen Orion, who is a consulting editor specializing in inclusion, diversity, and representation, a few months ago. And she and I talked about inclusion and inclusive language. And she basically asked me, how often do we say something like guys in our sentences? And I'm like, oh, I don't even know, right? I have a really good friend and she used the word dude literally in every other sentence. And I, I find it rather endearing. So to me, it never sounds negative in any shape or form. However, just because it doesn't exclude me in that moment, doesn't feel negative, doesn't mean everybody else feels positive about it. And so therefore, it makes sense to think more about our language and how we may unintentionally exclude people uh, by using certain words and phrases in our day-to-day -day language, but according to Dr. Jen Ryan, particularly in the corporate language, i.e. policies, for example, um, emails that we are sending out, and obviously the verbal language as well. And let me talk to you a little bit more about Dr. Jen Orion. She works with business leaders, publishers, product owners who want their content to be welcoming across a broader audience. And she has a PhD in human behavior and her background in tech includes designing new experiences for customers, leading organizational change and launching global initiatives. And we are actually in this episode talking about her experience as a woman in tech, um, her experience in developing new products and services, and how exclusion can literally uh, sneak into the development of those products right away. But also, what has been her experience as a woman amongst men? And um, how did she turn it into a positive experience? right and, and used it as an opportunity to create a meaningful change but after an extensive career of instigating change at fortune 100 companies and a few small but mighty startups jen created double talk consulting and she now guides organizations on designing content culture and processes that are more inclusive jen is also the author of inclusive af a field guide for accidental diversity experts. And what are accidental diversity experts? Well, if you want to know, then stay on and listen to today's episode because Jen is uh, talking us through this definition. Designed was this book for anyone thinking about inclusion and diversity. And IAF outlines a roadmap to safely introduce meaningful and lasting change. 
And outside of work, Chen is a travel enthusiast and avid runner. And she also has a strange affinity for bad 80s music getting lost in new cities and scary movies. So Chen, apart from the scary movies, we would be a fantastic match to head out into those cities and go to really cheesy 80s clubs. I would be in there. But she's talking about so much more today, how we can really be mindful of everyday situations where we may use exclusive language, for example, or how we can call microaggressions out, but in a very gentle way that truly, as I said before, creates change and encourages people to become more aware of those situations and the words and language we are using and so much more. So please enjoy this episode today and I speak to you again in a moment. Well, hello, hello. With me today is Jen O'Ryan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I was really looking forward to this, actually, because Jen, you will not believe it. You have literally been on my mind nearly every day for the last few weeks. Now, that may sound a bit inappropriate. I don't know. <laughs> let, me, let me give you a bit more context <laughs> around that. I give you one example. This week, I was talking to somebody and we had a wonderful, engaging, very upbeat conversation. Literally, I would say every 30 seconds, he called me dude or man, and it felt really informal and familiar and friendly. I wasn't necessarily bothered by that at all. But I think if I wouldn't have had this conversation prior to that chat with you about those small moments when we may be using language that could fall into this little trap of diversity, equity, inclusion, I would have not been so aware of it. And at some point I called him out. I said, the amount of times you just called me dude on this call. I I wasn't able to really count it. And we had a huge giggle about it again. So this is just one of many situations, Jen, when you were on my mind. I I appreciate that. And I absolutely appreciate the sentiment behind I've been on your mind for the last few weeks. So <laughs> part of that is actually my job is to get, be that little, you know, angel on the shoulders, like, Hey, don't say dude. Don't say. But that also speaks to kind of the, the dependency of the relationship, right? Because I, I have friends who are, are women and they just, I will text them. And if I'm really excited, it's dude. And that's kind of like our, not just a term of endearment, but also an expression of, I am so excited about whatever I'm going to tell you next. And it kind of brings their attention into it. Um, and it's like, honey, I I have a really bad habit of calling everybody honey. And it's just from a, you're such a nice person, honey. But it's definitely not how it's going to land to a complete stranger. So yeah, yeah always got to be mindful about that. So we are definitely going to talk about this a little bit more, what language to use when and when we shouldn't be using certain um, language, certain words as well, how to become more aware of it, how to nicely call it out as well when we are noticing it or observing it, just to, to actually, it might not sound like it, to make it a bit easier to be aware of it and to help some change when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion in the world. Before we do so, though, you already said it's actually a part of my role to make people aware of it and to be in that space. Share with us a little introduction about yourself. What is it you do on a day-to-day basis? So my my role, my job right now is my my company is I help organizations and people within those organizations get better at inclusion, diversity, and representation. 
And that can show up in a lot of different ways. It can show up in, you know, educational workshops, coaching, uh, content reviews, things like that. But it all comes down to at the end, just getting them to understand the nuance and the power of language. And especially in communication where you have written text or some kind of stagnant message, right? It's not a, it's not something that you can correct in the real time and combined with images because as human beings, we make meaning out of things sometimes when it isn't there. So I help people understand how their words and images combine to, to conjure things and make sure that that's conjuring is not a barrier to their message. So when you talk about images, what kind of images are you referring to? So images that can show up in um, an employee training or a marketing campaign Mm -hmm. or textbooks, manuscripts, things like that. Really, anytime you see image and uh, words together, those are typically structured in a way that they will either elicit an action or an emotional response or somehow convey a message very quickly. And the wrong combination or suboptimal combination of those can bring forth messages that you don't intend, or they will make it so difficult for the user to be able to consume and understand what is it that they're supposed to be doing. Now you used this beautiful word user. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's the fallback. I came up in tech. I guess I should have led with exactly. that. <laughs> I was just about to say that really highlights your background, right? So women in tech, how long have you been working in tech? I started working in tech back in the mid to late nineties. So depending on how you're officially defining tech, but yeah, so basically the mid to late nineties and I I was contracting, I was doing different projects and a colleague of mine, really good friend uh, was working a project at Microsoft. And this is back in 96, 97. And he said, no, you have to leave what you're doing now and come here. You don't understand. All they do is work and it's amazing. You will love it. And that was the end that that I like to say lovingly that Microsoft kind of ruined me for every other place that I've ever worked for because it was all about that innovation and failing fast and trying things and just being all all in around that so yeah that's where that's where it all started wow um it's lovely to hear that this existed this all about innovation going for it and failing fast as you've it, just said I think it has changed quite a bit over the last last years Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it wasn't all, it wasn't all great. I, I joked that it was some of my favorite 16 hour days working there, but the underlying tone was where, how do you do your best work? Where do you do your best work? Yeah. And if that best work is at three o'clock in the morning in an mm-hmm. office, then fantastic. Do that. But just the focus was on delivery and innovation and, and building something amazing mm-hmm. as a team. I actually didn't want to go down that route necessarily. It didn't even pop up for me before, but that's an interesting one because it's it's so relevant still and will be, I think, in the future as well to really play to the individual's strengths and abilities and flexibility as well. Now, I appreciate perhaps it's not Necess- uh, necessarily um, doable in each role, particularly when you are very client focused and your client is not as flexible. But there are loads of roles where you could indeed do that and say, you know, when are you going to be at your best? So please do the work then. What were those keys to success to be at your best on a very consistent level? A lot of it really had to do with the with the leadership, whether that was a formal leadership in a in a manager, director, VP, mm-hmm. or if it was just kind of leadership within the team. 
how teams will self-organize and, and it's not necessarily one person's always in charge for lack of a better word, based on what the initiative is, that that leadership vibe, whoever was taking taking the lead would would change slightly. And it was about understanding that there are all these different ways of being, that people process information differently. They are creative at different times. They need different types of motivators and understanding how, how you can leverage that, not in a manipulative way, but in a way that really enhances the rest of the team. And it, and it, it's really difficult to get that mix right. It's really easy to overcorrect and kind of either micromanage or too much latitude isn't, isn't always going to be successful, mm -hmm. but it's really being in tune with your team and what's happening for them mm -hmm. and what the end goal is. What's your intended outcome? And being in tune with the team is such a fantastic phrase because it, again, highlights individuality. It actually highlights, for me, curiosity, getting to know your team members, understanding the, the skills, the strengths, the weaknesses as well. So how did you all get in tune with one another? It was a lot of spending time together mm -hmm. and, and being vulnerable, even before we were calling it being vulnerable, right? It, it was having that, it was having that safe, trusted space and safe, not being comfortable, safe being you could take risks and you could take really big risks. And if it failed spectacularly, then that was just what happened. And we all learned from it. Right. And, and being able to, to hold people accountable and that healthy balance of tension of challenging each other. Um, and like I said, it wasn't always perfect. It wasn't always great. It has some very intense, relentless weeks of delivery, but at the end of the day, we knew that we we're all in it together. What was your actual actual role in tech? Uh, I've done everything from launching products globally, uh, launching policies. Primarily, it's uh, new customer experiences and things like that. So I had a mentor who very aptly described it as, I work between the hardware, the software, and the wetware. So the wetware being humans because we cry and we sweat. And understanding how people engage with technology and with change and with each other. And how do you take that technology or change and integrate it into a way that people can really consume it without having to think about it? So I am really glad to see and hear from a few of my friends and, and colleagues and even clients that more and more women work in tech. And I mean by that being developers, for example, designers in tech as well. That wasn't always the case necessarily, and we are still not there. I think more and more talent, female talent, is being looked for in, in the tech industry. How was it for you to be a woman in tech, in particular, in a very tech role as well? It was it was really difficult. I mean, again, late nineties, early two thousands, um, mm -hmm. and I do see some of this changing, especially with Gen Z and and some of the the generations entering the workplace now, but it was very difficult. It was very much that you had to adapt your behaviors to whatever masculine representation was happening in the group. And so if it was a very vocal, loud, slamming doors, shouting in meetings, things like that, you almost had to kind of adapt yourself to that because that's how you were heard in the team. And it, it wasn't the same way as like, I couldn't just express my ideas you know, through, through my voice and my natural authentic who I am every day, because it just simply wouldn't be heard. And so it was a lot of adaptation and a lot of being able to shift. And actually when, uh, during the shutdown, I was spending more time on remote calls and a colleague of mine who was sitting next to me said, you know, I didn't realize this, but I, you actually lower your voice when you go on calls. I actually lower the register of my voice and I've been doing it for so long that I don't even notice it. 
but that is very much from if I just use my natural voice in a meeting, it would be, why are you hysterical? Why are you so emotional? It's like, Mm -hmm. that's just how words come out of me. (laughs) And so it's just over time conditioning to, if I want to be heard in the meeting, I have to, I have to lower the register of my voice. I'm just trying to put these two things together, this tuning into one another, having the safe space, feeling we can truly trust ourselves, right? So tuning in. And on the other hand, I had to adapt and I had to change certain personality mm-hmm. traits in that moment, uh, moment as well. So how, how are those aspects coming together? It, it's really more about, and, and this is just my experience, but mm. it, it's more about understanding what is needed in the room. Like if I'm, if I'm talking to you, how do we, how do we best communicate? And, and just really being that adaptive style, which doesn't lend itself well, you know, well to career development early on. So uh, not something I would definitely recommend, but it is, it is interesting because that's often can be the experience of people who are the only one of them in the room is that they are the ones that have to adapt. And, you know, being a woman in tech is not even the, the, the most difficult position to be in the only one of me, but yeah, it's, it's, it's put on that person to shift to whatever is the the predominant group and adapt to their style. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's looking back, the natural progression of my role in this world is to take that experience and that understanding and apply it to organizational health, organizational behavior, mm-hmm. and really helping organizations get better at diversity and inclusion. Because mm-hmm. if you are, if you feel like as an organization, you're doing really well, but everybody who doesn't look like you and think like you and sound like you has to adapt, then you're losing all that diverse perspective. You're losing all of that, everything that's going to contribute to your, your optimal solutions and creative outcomes. Yeah. But I, I sometimes feel it's a minefield and I'm talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion soft. And I would say I have a fairly diverse circle of friends as well and colleagues I say fairly yeah, there's always space for improvement but but still I believe for me personally it, it's sometimes a minefield um, sometimes getting nervous about oh what can I say wrong where can I step on toes like if you want very precise example I'm gonna lead a workshop next week and I was briefed on a few more things today and one of the um, information was people don't identify by gender So please be mindful of not saying he or she about anybody. It's in my DNA to sometimes say, oh, I can remember a story and he did blah, 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 blah. And and I feel rather nervous about it. And the more I focus on it, the more I will say it probably and make this mistake in this moment. So, So how was this growth path for you to become more confidently aware of those situations, the words, the language, as you alluded to already. So that you say, you know what, with this, or this confidence I can now share with other people and help them grow. Yeah. And and you touched on such a perfect example. And it seems like at the surface, it seems like such a simple example, right? Mm -hmm. Using they instead of he or she, but that's the power of language that we have as humans. Our, Our ability to express shapes how we interpret other people in the world, how we interpret ourselves in the world. And so what I always bring people back to is you have to practice. It's like any other skill. It's like speaking a different language. You have to practice. And as 
weird or uncomfortable or unfamiliar as it might feel, you know, sitting in in your car, driving into work and saying they and integrating that into your normal sentence structure is what's really necessary to kind of reestablish those those connections. And as as odd as that might feel, once you start doing it, you will see everywhere that we put gender in language that where it doesn't need to be. The short answer to that is I coach people if if the gender is either unknowable because you don't know the person or it's immaterial to what the message is, then just use they. And once you get into that habit, you'll find yourself autocorrecting when other people aren't doing it internally. What's the reaction you usually notice when you do that in conversations with others? It really depends. I've had some people where you can just see that there's a pause because that's not the word that they're expecting. Like we're very predictive creatures, right? So halfway through a sentence, we will already start to think where the person is going with this and where, what our response will be. And when I, I will be talking about somebody I saw at, you know, the market or the bank and I'm like, yeah. And then they went to go do this and you can see like a little, just a brief flash. And then they're like, okay, I know what you're saying now. And that kind of helps solidify And occasionally I will get questions from people and I'm just like, I don't know their gender Mm -hmm. and it's really not the point of my story. So we don't need to introduce it into the conversation. And it's not really just, it's not even that it's an erasure, it's building a bigger stage, right? We're not saying that there aren't he and she, there aren't men and women, there are. It's just that that's just not just men and women or he and she, there are other ways of being. And let's, Let's open that space and let these people tell us who they are. Absolutely. And and learn more about them and their identity, how they identify themselves. Yes, yes, yes. And the other thing that that using they does is it prevents our brain's ability to build a narrative around that person. So if I say he, because I've been socially conditioned my entire life, I'm already, my brain is pulling in attributes and expectations and physical features and all these other things around where it's just my imagination. It's not reality at all. If I say they, my brain doesn't have anything to hang on to. So I'm not building in assumptions. I'm pausing here because you make me think. And again, what I said early on comes to play that I keep thinking about our conversation quite frequently. And it's weird But I think it's also how our brain works. We've had a short but quite intensive discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the language combined with it or connected to it. And since then, I feel there are examples I'm experiencing, I'm hearing about literally every day and that on multiple occasions, I'm like, oh, haven't even noticed it before. So a small moment, our conversation triggers so many associations with it, where you build this connection right away from somebody who was supposed to submit their details in order to access psychometric testing and leadership, who refused to do it because it was all the whites, right? British white, European white, white other, or um, all the some of the other cultural backgrounds. I don't even want to highlight all of them. And then there was this bracket other. I was like, <clears throat> I'm not other. This is ridiculous, right? To a mom who says to me, 
I am thinking about uh, letting my child change school because they are so focused, and that leads us to one of your specialities. They are so focused on the LGBTQ plus community and constantly talking about gender and gender diversity and so on. I don't want these conversations at home. So really being anti discussing those topics openly and so many more. I was just like, wow, where to even start to have those open discussions about it and to raise awareness? And I saw literally a facial expression of, oh, I want to step in when I shared with you the other um, points. So feel free to add to it and to share your views on it. So many things are coming up for me right now. Because like one, I want to talk to that parent because I just want to have the conversation of talk about what's coming up for you. Having that strong of a response about LGBTQ or gender or, or whatever is being discussed in schools, like that's a very visceral response. And that's where I would love to talk to people and say, you know, coming from a very curious, positive way, like what is coming up for you? Let's talk through that because that is a, that is a valid real response, but it's not really based on something that's sustainable. Like you don't want to talk about in school, but it's the reality of the world and it's going to be talked about in school. And so let's, let's get you where you need to be and help process, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, other is, you can think of it almost like somebody who's looking at it as an administrative task. So I I can't categorize everything in my accounting portfolio. And so I'm going to have categories and then this 15% will just be other, but humans aren't categories like that. So exactly what you said, humans are never other. And that's where we have to take the lens back and we have to really say, we have this amazing capacity for vocabulary. What is it we're trying to convey? And that seems like a really heavy lift for a small intake form, but it it signals and it carries and it tells that person everything about working with your organization that you see anybody who isn't this is other. And that goes against your individual identity right away. I'm not other, I don't belong into a box in general. But now with your background, product development, product launch, um, tech, wow, I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole about uh, diversity, exclusion, equity in tech and in tech development. So what are some of the themes that you have been noticing over the last few years where you say, oh, we've got to focus on it, we've got to get it right and do something differently there? It's it's so complex, right? Because it's, you know, as I think I mentioned in our earlier conversation that in tech, oftentimes it could be six or seven people sitting in a conference room in Seattle, you know, sketching out on a whiteboard what this product would be and, and then launching it in all of these different countries and all these different regions. And just mm-hmm. assuming since it was successful here, it will obviously be successful there mm-hmm. and not having time to really say, what is the experience? What is the expectation here? Outside of like, what are the consumer laws and the legal framework and the tax implications? What does the person in this country expect that this would do and how would they relate to it? And so when I I talk about like the drop down form example, like the other, that is a very, very small blip in a significantly larger project. So if you look at something, a typical product cycle will have you know, development and prototype and proof of concept and all the market research and then development and then testing and then QA. And this is 18 months later, they're getting ready to launch. And there's this little tiny box that nobody's ever looked at that just says other. But if that other is the only thing that your consumer sees, mm. everything else is just gone. You've lost them. But now there are human beings involved in that process, right? 
And those human beings might find themselves in other. So, so isn't that the language we may be using then also with our internal consumers? And, you know, how can we start at a much earlier stage to identify those potential pitfalls? Absolutely. And the thing is, is that you have to have somebody who is objective enough to be able to spot things like that and, and know and know what one know what to look for, but also know why that could be problematic. And even if they it's not something that they are an absolute expert and they know that this is should be examined, they, there's something about it that's just like this doesn't land right. We need to look at this. And the difficulty is that especially with product launches, there's so much focus on first to market, get it to market, we'll fix it later, you know what I mean? Minimum viable product. And very little attention is paid to that, if if any. And the ones who are doing it are doing it really well. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's we just need to get more exposure and more understanding of why, why am I asking uh, product developers and and marketing VPs to look at these seemingly very small things because it's like a three pound weight when you first start working out. You see these small things, and as you said, you see now now you can notice them everywhere. Once you start noticing those small things, you start noticing the big things, and then you start noticing some of the systemic issues, the institutionalized issues, the the really big things that need to be changed as well. You start to see inequities that you weren't noticing before. Now, I have so many points and questions that have come up for me. Um, but I want to go back to examples you've just mentioned, right? Those who do it well, they do it really well, you said. Can you share an example with us of either a product or a service or an organization who just almost nailed it? I say deliberately almost because I think we always work in progress and will be. Um, who are real front runners, basically? I have a list of examples. There's one of my favorite, and I'm blanking on the name. I apologize, but it is a a, a shaving membership where you you get the razors every month, mm. and they send it to you. And it came out a few years ago, and I actually used this for a very long time to show the subtlety of impactful change. And there's uh, it, it's it's talking about all the different ways of being a man and masculinity and what does that mean and you know all these different representations and I think that I think the storyline goes that it used to be that you had to shave and then you couldn't shave and then like all the generations and there is a very subtle nuance one of the one of the humans represented is a trans man and it's it's when you want to feel like you is is the word that's associated and it's done so well and so beautifully that 98% of the population would just skim right over that and not notice it. But the percentage of the population that's going to notice it is going to notice that you, that this company went and intentionally found a way to highlight underrepresented, typically ignored ways of being in a way that it was just very natural. And it wasn't a look what we're doing, big production, it was it was seamless. And I think that's one of the best examples. That and Procter & Gamble had a series out a while ago, and it was about uh, the talk that that uh, Black African-American BIPOC, ABAC populations have to have with their kids, unfortunately have to have, I hate using that word, but it's needful for them to have to keep their kids safe. And those are conversations that, you know, I'm white, it would never occur to me that I have to have those conversations at that level, right? But it just expressed the reality of it in a very human, but very real way. And it's so powerful. 
it, it just made me think about my son, you know, and the values I want to share with him so that he can live them. And he's a white privileged boy already, you can say. So for me, it's all about uh, not feeling or feeling in a positive sense privileged so that he can share those privileges with others in order to create more equity, basically, mm -hmm. um, but not to use it in a, in a hindering way and in a way that um, makes other people feel unequal and yeah. How can I say that? I don't know, but unequal and being too arrogant about it. I think everybody has to find their own ways of how to pass on our learnings and experiences to the next generations. Let it be your kids. If you don't have kids, your nieces, nephews, friends, well, whatever, whoever it is, you know, yeah. but anything we learn, let's pass it on. And there's so many natural opportunities. And that's one of the reasons why I really advise people, one, don't ever underestimate your ability to change or make a change or influence change, because that's that's how it starts. And I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've seen this done on my behalf, done on others' behalf when I've been in the room where, you know, there is a, a non-male human, women or non-male humans, and raising an idea in a conference room and for whatever reason isn't picked up. And Somebody else will repeat it, a male, and gets credit. That's such a good idea. That's fantastic. We're going to do that. And sometimes there's, you know, some questionable malice, not malice, but intention behind it. And sometimes it's just people have the same idea at the same time, but this person isn't getting credit for it. And I've seen so many situations where somebody would just say, actually, Priya just said that. And I think it's a really good idea. Priya, can you talk more about that? Or if Priya is being interrupted saying, I can't hear her when you're talking. So could you please just let her finish her thought? Little disruptions like that carry through. And it's not in a way like you're talking about your son. It's not in a way like, oh, poor woman over here, I have to help you. Mm -hmm. It's addressing the behavior that is happening with the other party in a way that shuts that down and interrupts it and allows this person to continue their thought. And that requires us to see people and get to know them for who they are. I, I love that you also use the word curiosity. You know, approach people with curiosity. Help me understand. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. do you want to be called? What has been your journey, your path here? Um, and, and simply learn it. I think that's what I would probably do in a workshop like next week, you know, if um, I, I get stuck somewhere, just to say, so how would you like to, how do you identify yourself? But I think, or not just I think I'm observing this actually, that our own insecurities about the unknown holds us back from calling things out, from being more open about them and therefore enable this learning. And um, there is another side to it that I'm observing even in my own family, wider family actually, where I'm being told, you're taking this topic too far. We are exaggerating this. Now it's transgender people being in those adverts. Where is this world going? And of this approach. And you said something very early on when I shared this example about um, the person who complained about the school and what was taught there. Uh, why is that? This is where we are heading. So let's take a look into the future. Why is it so important to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion more and more and bring it to life? Where is our world heading? Yeah, that's when I was, and I, I, I feel like this is going to answer, but it's a little so curious, a little tangential, but just 
stick with me. Um, so back in, I want to say 2016, 2018, I was getting a lot of calls from people leaders, HR executives, because they didn't know how to talk about gender. And that's when the, the main segment of the population was really starting to, to see gender diverse and transgender and, and non-binary humans. And it was becoming more and more of a topic. And they're like, I don't want to talk about gender in the workplace. I don't want to talk about sexual orientation in the workplace. I don't want to talk about attraction. And, and like 101, like five minutes in, my guidance was, we're already talking about it. We're just talking about one. We're, we're talking about one orientation. And that's, you know, people being heterosexual. Or we're only talking about the gender binary. But we are absolutely talking about gender and orientation and attraction all the time. It's just not this other way of being. Um, and so I, I think it's, just, it's, it's time. If we want people to show up as authentically who they are, we have to allow space for them to show up authentically who they are. And it's on us to understand and to lean in with curiosity. And not curiosity in the sense of objectification, but curiosity in the sense of, I don't know what this is, so I'm going to educate myself and, and find credible, qualified resources uh, and experts to, to help me figure this out and also deal with whatever's coming up for me. Because we all have those visceral responses to something, right? All these early messages that were implanted into our brains from the time that we were brought home mm -hmm. or brought into the world, those, those are deeply seated. And we have responses that we just don't know what to do with sometimes. And it's therapy. It's it's unpacking. It's figuring out where those came from and then getting through that understanding. And I'm coming back to the question, why is it so important? You, you imply it, why it is so important. <laughs> but I guess if we were to educate more people and educate ourselves more, um, raise the level of awareness, how will the world change? And I know this is a big question. No, no, no. I think it's a fantastic question. So um, I'm going to take it back to tech for a minute. So if we if we are all in a room together and we've got this amazing diverse perspectives and, and very rich team that we're working with and we all have this cohesion, if I have to shift and compartmentalize, if I can't talk about what I did over the weekend because I hung out with my wife or I hung out with my husband, depending on how I'm presenting, I have to compartmentalize and that takes up cognitive bandwidth. That takes up space. And that causes me to, to filter and to think about what I'm saying and to think about how I'm gesturing and how I'm being interpreted. And all of that energy could be going into innovation and creativity. And so it's it's not just this emotional drain of I have to closet myself or I have to pretend to be something that I'm not. It's that if I don't have to do that, then all of my creative energy goes into the project or the work or the the problem that we're trying to solve. The other side of that is that there's so many, there's such a large pool of talent that's not being tapped into. Yeah. It's so many people that because they can't show up on the doorstep of a company in it's Seattle or Atlanta or LA, they're not included. Yeah. And if if we have these virtual teams and we're tapping into people who, you know, are, are process information differently in a way that doesn't isn't conducive for them to be working in an office we're missing out on that perspective. So I think that's that's one of the other layers of reason that this is so important. Yeah, I think a big shift there has happened through the pandemic. One of the big pluses that came out of it that we are tapping into a very or more diverse talent base as well. Um, a friend of mine who's going through a gender change at the moment, he finally found a role that he loves 
before the pandemic, he was almost in a depression mode on a very regular basis for not being able to show his real him or her uh, mm. in the future, real them, uh, I yeah. should say. And now it has such a positive impact on his their entire well-being. And it's wonderful to see. And I wanted to add that to your vision and your big reason, really being the person you are and feeling free to do so. And coming together with all of our differences and learning about one another. I mean, it just just talking about it feels for me very vibrant and energizing and positive. It's wonderful. So how have you perceived the pandemic and how it actually helped people feeling more themselves and tapping into this talent? That is such a great question because a lot of the work that I did was around when I would talk to organizations about their return to office plan. I my one of my first questions would be, is your return to office plan contradicting all of your diversity and inclusion goals? And they're like, no, those are totally separate. And I'm like, okay, let's let's look at that. Um, because a lot of times if you don't have to pretend to be somebody who you aren't, you get up and you just do your best work. You know, if you're working in a physical office and you have to go all all the way around to the other office to get to the coffee because you just absolutely cannot walk by that person and have them ask to touch your hair or have them say something inappropriate or, you know what I mean? Like all these little things that people have to deal with every single day that now all of a sudden they don't. And not just that they don't have to think about it, but that weight of, I don't have to worry about it. I can just do amazing work. And people who, you know, there's so many different uh, barriers created by having to be in a physical space, people with um, and compromised immune systems or neurodivergent humans, or, sorry, neurodiverse humans, uh, PTSD, like all these different things that make it difficult for people to function effectively at their best in an office. It's just gone. And so I, that was some of the guidance that I gave to people managers. I'm like, if you can't build a team, like I get that building team cohesion and and that culture, for lack of a better word, is difficult in a hybrid environment. But that just means that's something you have to work on. It doesn't mean that your fallback can be everybody has to come in for some arbitrary amount of time on these arbitrary days because somebody in the executive suite feels better about it. And that is a huge generalization, but um, <laughs> but it's an amalgam of the you know the experiences, and it it really it does. It's a challenge for leadership. You have to find different ways to engage your team, and it's not going to be as easy as ordering a couple pizzas and having everybody in the conference room. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And if we talk about authenticity and being our real selves and showing up as who you are, I mean, how many people sat in front of Zoom and perhaps still do? Nice jacket on and shirt, and then underpants or PJs uh, bottoms, and it's just like. You know, yes, you can laugh about it and you take it with a with a sense of humor, absolutely. Or you wonder, why am I doing this? Well, what's the real reason? What I, would I usually wear if I feel fully comfortable in myself? How would I show up? How much how much better and rich would the conversation be if I didn't have to worry about being too hot or too cold? Yeah. Or the fluorescent lights, please, with the fluorescent lights. Just know, like I'm getting a headache thinking about that noise they make. <laughs> but it's just like, if you could control your environment for you, it, like it's Maslow's hierarchy, right? If you can control your environment for you, that's all the other things that you don't have to think about. And you can just focus on what am I doing? What's the problem I'm trying to solve? And I, I don't want, I don't want people to be taken away from this, that it has to be all 
like you and I, I'm sure could geek out on this all day long, <laughs> but we need people who don't necessarily agree with us. We, we need people in the room who absolutely don't agree with us. And that's, you know, it's always people who are like, oh, I don't want to go to a session on inclusion and diversity because I don't need that. That's not for me. It's like, those mm-hmm. are the people I want in the room because those are the ones who are going to stop us from completely geeking out and changing the world mm-hmm. and saying, have you thought about this? You can find examples literally every minute. Yeah. And if it's coming from a curiosity place and it's not coming from a toxic place or a damaging or a disrespectful place or bringing people down, um, we can have those conversations all day long. Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash inner professional. You mentioned uh, systemic challenges as well. I was thinking about systemic um, way of influencing my way of being an individuality as well. And you could take the example of, you know, where my PJ trousers, um, but then a shirt on top uh, because I feel obliged to do so. But I was thinking about someone I used to work with and I admired this person very much for being just so much them, right? Showing up the way they are, um, not falling into the corporate systemic um, way of, of dressing and being, speaking their kind of voice and opinions in a respectful, open way, but it, very different. And this person made me think from morning to evening and made me challenge myself. And I trusted them completely. The other week I saw uh, an article where they were um, presented and so on and so forth in their new role, still the same organization, suited and booted, completely different person to me. I thought, what happened in that system that suddenly who was somebody who was so loyal to themselves in terms of their authenticity, just in this way changed already. And and I wonder how a system can influence that and how we can break those, I wouldn't say those systems, but how we can positively influence bigger institutionalized um, systems here in this case as well. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why, and not everybody wants to work with a consultant and people are probably already having reactions to the word that I use consultant, but that's where there is value in having somebody who is objective coming in, because if you're so close to the solution, you're so close to the environment, it is really difficult sometimes to pull back and see what's really happening. I mean, I, I look at it like, you know, if you've ever started a job and then everything seems so foreign and everything, you have to think about everything. And six months later, you just don't, you're part of the system. Yeah. And it's not that you can't solve that because you also need the intimate understanding of how the system works to be able to affect change. But yeah, it can be really, really difficult to, to have the objectivity to be able to do that. Yeah. And and you could come in as a consultant or however you want to call the team, the people coming in. At the same time, there are still certain processes running in the system. 
i.e. because of the system and certain behaviors and assumptions and biases, people may withdraw even more. Stop to speak up. Don't call out those small moments you have shared some amazing examples about earlier on, right? I cannot listen to person X if you are now talking over what mm-hmm. they have been saying, right? That we may have to, the contrary situation happening. So on the one hand, you start working with the system. And on the other hand, certain issues are going to deepen. And that's where I'm kind of, I kind of stop. And I'm someone who says, you know, one change after the other, get hold of one person, support them, make them see what's possible. And then they can pass it on to more and more people. Then focus on the next one or smaller groups and step-by-step in terms of viral change, we can make larger change happen. Is that your experience or how how do you see the world? Absolutely. And and the thing is, is that that kind of energy is catching. It absolutely is. I mean, in in, in the work that I've done, I, I tend to see people along all the aspects of the spectrum. So people who are fully in, they're champions, they're advocates, they're ready to go. They That's what they do naturally without thinking about it. And then the far end, there's people who are resistant for whatever reason. Maybe they're just resistant to change at all, or maybe they're just resistant to the type of change that's being introduced, cynical, whatever. I like the, the people in the middle. That's where you can target your energy. People who are ambivalent, who maybe have never had to think about this. And those are the people you can have a conversation and and you start to build that momentum Mm -hmm. and you start to pull them along and they start pulling people along. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you have executives coming along and asking questions. And and that's where you really get the good change, the lasting change. But then I, I also sometimes there's really assessing is change possible in the environment that you're in? Like, are you working in a company where they give really good lip service or they think about doing the right thing, but then when push comes to shove, six weeks later, it just stops. You find yourself solving the same problems over and over. That can be really damaging, not just to employee engagement and morale, but at a personal level. I mean, that just takes a toll. And so sometimes it is taking a step and saying, am I in the right environment or should I look something else? And and the same thing with team members. I mean, there some just have, you know, if you're working with somebody and, and it's not that they don't agree, it's that they're sabotaging or or there's a toxic behavior or or something that's damaging to the team going on, really taking a hard look and saying, is this something that needs to continue? And what I would say here, having experienced it myself, pay strong attention to your emotion in this moment. When something doesn't quite click and over a long period of time, you feel restricted, constrained, kind of this is the wrong place. I, I said to a former manager of mine, you know, I feel like a square peg being pushed through a round hole. At least people are trying to push me through this round hole. It just doesn't work. And I felt that literally in my entire body. Mm-hmm. And the moment I changed, I made this choice for me to change. Oh, everything opened up. I felt liberated. I could breathe again. I saw more opportunities coming up. So I think our body is giving us loads of important messages to listen to. Absolutely. And I think that's where we need to start doing the deep work. Like I'm a huge fan of therapy, but do, if, if that's not your thing, at least doing the deep work and being introspective around what is coming up for me. Do I feel uncomfortable because I'm being challenged in a positive way, like working out or like learning something new where it's frustrating, but then you get through, or is this a systemic insidious environment that is just not for me? 
it's just not a good match. And so if it's that frustration, discomfort, but then you have a breakthrough, that's just a normal growth process, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think we have a tendency to kind of ignore or gaslight ourselves or like Mm -hmm. just diminish, oh, it's fine. Oh, they didn't mean it. Oh, it's not really a microaggression when this person talks over me and interrupts me every single time because it is about silencing other voices. Yeah. It doesn't always reach the level of bullying, but if we're talking about exclusionary behaviors, it's about silencing other voices and perspectives and opinions that are being expressed. And if you find yourself being silenced or or diminishing or shrinking, or you have that visceral response when you see influence in the come into the room, that's where you reevaluate and say, do, do I have, and not everybody has that level of privilege or they don't have that available to them. Mm-hmm. So find, find help, find a way to get through that because it, it's not yours to take on. That actually reminded me of, of a situation um, where I was being interrupted literally all the time or literally my contributions were ignored. Similar to what you shared earlier on. The conclusion that I drew from those behaviors wasn't they are microaggressions and I need to raise awareness here or where can I get support? No, no. The conclusion was I need to express myself differently. Clearly, I can't speak English properly. Clearly, my message isn't important or valid enough. It was all about me and beating myself up in this moment, what I need to do differently and better. Now, don't get me wrong. I always have space for improvement. Yeah, especially in communication. But is it okay that someone interrupts you on a constant basis, ignores your contributions, and gives you that feeling as to whether it happened consciously or unconsciously? It it doesn't matter subconsciously. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't happen. Absolutely. And that goes back to respect in the workplace. Like if we have respect for workplaces, then like I I it's a habit that I developed. Interrupting and just start talking. Part of it's just I get excited and it just comes out, which I need to work on. Uh, and part of it is just that competition from you know the early two thousands where you had to talk over each other to be heard. So I'm working on that. But what you're describing feels more like a a silencing or a, a work style personality trait that has never been addressed. Uh, and neither of those is good. And that's that's where it's like if it's solvable, workable, fantastic. If it's a more systemic, intentional silencing, hoping if they keep talking over you, you will eventually stop talking. That that feels very different. And that's one of those things you can, you know. And this carries risks, obviously, for the organization, for the system in general. What kind of risks did you and do you see in the, the partners you are working with? So if they don't do anything about it, now what can happen? You lose talent. I've worked, I've consulted with organizations and that has been my guidance to them is they don't want to lose their star performers, whether it's a top sales, where it's the best engineer or whatever, they don't want to lose that person. And so they sacrifice other people at the mantle of keeping that person because they meet the goals. They, they, you know, hit the objectives every year. And so that's, that's been my counsel is like, you can't save everybody. And what, what happens is it's not like they're going to shutter the doors and go out of business. Right. But what happens is over time, talented people have a choice. Not always. Sometimes there's life situations where for whatever reason, their insurance is tied to that or something, they can't leave the job. But for the most part, talent has a choice and they will leave. And so what you find yourself ending up with is a lot of toxic behaviors filtering in 
to the organization um, because that's the type of people who stay when it feels like that. Again, generalization, but that's that's been my trade is that, that you see a lot of talent walk out the door or uh, leave the company and they just can't retrieve it. And it also lends itself to a lack of innovation, right? If you're, yeah. if you're a leadership and your organization, if you can't take in new information and internalize that and move forward, you're not going to be able to innovate your product either. Like I, I see a lot of that alignment with stagnant process, stagnant policies, stagnant approach. And also we're hanging on to these people, even though we know they're toxic because they deliver. Or we are not facing the conflict to do something about it. Disco, can't you two figure it out? Yes, yes, that is also, if you're, as a people manager, if those words are coming out of your mouth, please stop that because, uh, yeah, don't don't ask a bully and their target to work it out together. But the upside is it doesn't have to be like that. And it's actually not a lot of energy to, to flip the script. And, and keep people engaged and showing up as themselves. It, it just is language that shared respect and, and have boundaries. I find it really interesting what you do. I mean, there are various things you actually do um, when partnering your clients and supporting your clients. And I promise we are going to talk about the book as well in a moment, but there's so many interesting things in your pocket. When I, when I came across your profile for the first time, what made me very, very curious was your writing and helping others basically to rewrite content in general as to whether it's their company content or um, internal messages, external messages, whatever it is. And I thought, wow, where to start and where to finish when it comes to this to get it right. So how do you even approach rewriting content and making it more inclusive and diverse at the same time? It is, it is really broad and it's been such an interesting challenge because some of the clients that I work with, when they contacted me, I'm like, I don't think I can help you. Like policy documents, a policy document that's is, but then as I got more into it, I, it's so many layers, right? So we'll take the policy document as just an example, going through and making sure that the default pronoun everywhere isn't he or isn't he, she, making sure that it's they, making sure that it's inclusive. But then the next level of that is going through and making sure that it's not these super dense blocks of paragraph text that as human beings very difficult to, to interpret. So it's very difficult to actually take away a message from this huge block of text. Then the next layer is getting rid of all the complex language, the legalese, like we talk about all the time, but having it in plain language so that people really understand what the message is. And they don't have to wade through all of this, especially if English is not a first language. Mm-hmm. Now we're putting it barriers on top of barriers on top of barriers. Yeah. Something as simple as font. It's really difficult to read. People who process information differently, people who um, have dyslexia, just making sure that it's easy for people to, to read and consume and understand. And again, it goes back to that three pound weight because it sounds like, why are you wasting my time? Nobody reads these. And my message back is if nobody reads these, like you're literally making them read them. And if they are investing time with that, are these documents and the way that you're presenting them aligned with your stated values? And if you're talking about diversity and inclusion and and we're all in this together, but you're making it nearly impossible for people to understand this, that's, you know. And then another really good example is um, training 
especially like the digital training that is coming through for respect in the workplace. Like so much of that is just steeped in stereotypes and gender. And honestly, some of the content is triggering. And so I've been working with HR teams to help them find content that isn't like that. And then also production houses to help them improve their content so that it actually changes behavior, gets the message across in a way that isn't offensive or triggering or scary or you know, fill in your, your adjective. Well, I think you will have a lot of work uh, coming in for a long <laughs> period of time. I was even talking to an organization that I support the other day, and I saw their introduction invite to participants through training slash um, development program. And I am no writer whatsoever, and you can hear very clearly that I'm also not a native English speaker. The one thing that I've noticed right away was It talks about me, 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 the organization. This is what we are going to get. This is how you will help us achieve. It was nothing about the participant and how to motivate yes. them, how to engage them, what they are going to get from it, and then how they can contribute together, their inclusion with the other people to success, however they define success. It was nothing about it. And I read through it, and I have to admit, I only... I was aware of it because in my coaching industry, there was a lot of learning and there is still a lot of learning about how to speak to the external world <laughs> and how to make sure people can identify with your message. And I'm nowhere near perfect, but I immediately noticed that and I said, I wouldn't sign up for this. I would be like, you want me to do all the work for you, but what am I getting from it? Yes. And where's the we? Where's Where the we? The what we? happened to the we that you were talking about in the interview loop? Yeah. And now I'm signing the paper. There's no we. There's yeah. just you. That, that is, yeah, that is such a good example. And it's exactly how, and that's exactly how it lands with people. It's like, what happened to this? Now I'm talking to your lawyers. Do I need lawyers? Yeah. yeah. There was one I was going through, and this is just a very anonymous one, but um, but they were saying grounds for termination include, you know, showing up unkempt not professional clothes, bad hygiene. I'm like, I, I would read through this as a potential employee and say, that is, I'm concerned for your company. Like that isn't something that you should have to spell out in a policy. That is something that should be handled, you know, by humans. And it, it just, yeah, exactly the same thing. It's like, what am I signing up for? This is, this is how you treat people. Yeah. Right. And how you think about people as well. And it's, it's and no one had looked at it since 2002. And I'm like, You got it. Nobody wants to read through their documents, but you got it. That's a long time. What I want to highlight with those examples is small opportunities, big impact. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if it's not something you want to read through, you can hire an editor and have them read through it or, or just take a weekend, have an intern, have somebody, have a new person read it. They're, you know, fresh. See, what is this communicating? Would you put it up on your website? We're dealing with humans. And, and that that touches on every life step of the life cycle. You use that so nicely before, and there's uh, obviously the other side to it. And the other side is that you are being asked to support that process, those changes. Uh, I'm being asked to give feedback on some content. So people don't want to just leave it as it is. They get more of the external perspectives as well in order to make change. And that's that's a great step, and that's wonderful to see. Absolutely. And, and consider bringing in two or three people and just deconstructing it over a couple of days, like that the amount of 
work that can get done by a very focused group of people. You know, I, I was very excited to see that CDOs, chief diversity officers were, were becoming more popular, but give me a couple motivated program managers and we will change the world. I love that approach and energy behind it. Here you go. So if you are listening to the show, you know how to get who to get on board to help you with it. Jen. You're accidental experts. Yes. Jen, we've got to uh, we've got to talk a little bit more about your book, though. I have a few questions uh, about it. And you're currently writing on your uh, your second one, right? I am. Yes. The manuscript is being reviewed by my very favorite copy editor in, in the whole world. So when do you intend to publish it? I'm targeting March, All which right. means probably June, but I, I need a, I need a date. I'm very, very date goal oriented. So so let's talk about your first one, uh, the first book first, and perhaps you share the title with the listeners first before I ask questions about it. Yes. So the title of the book is Inclusive AF, a field guide for accidental diversity experts. So you know what questions are coming, right? AF. I- I, I can hear my mother's voice right now, like, Jen, what are you doing? Don't call it something <laughs> nice. Don't call it that. No one will buy it. <laughs> so that was actually the working title while, uh, so I, I worked on it for about 18 months, two years. And that was the working title because I didn't know what else to call it. I didn't want something that would just sit on somebody's bookshelf and they would have it there because it made them seem like they were interested in DEI. And then 2020, right? I was I was in the final stages of writing it in 2020. And Literally and figuratively, people's worlds are on fire. Like all of this is happening. And I actually pulled out huge segments of the book because it was a nice to have. And I really wanted people to have something that they could do and they could connect with and they could actually take action or or feel like, you know, something that they could do. That was the title that stuck. And I, I give people a, a possible deniability. Maybe they, maybe I thought field guide was one word, a field guide, AF. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, we can't, we can't be polite about inclusion. We have to be all in. It can't be when we have budget. It can't be when things slow down. It, we have to be all in. There's no more, you know, waiting for people to be comfortable with change. I'm I'm so with you. You can hear it as a slight hesitation in my voice because my assumption is, and that, that might be a completely wrong assumption, that there are loads of people and that might even include me who don't know what it means to be all in because we don't even know what it all entails. So it's such a wide topic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And and my guidance to individuals and in the book is that all in really depends on, on where you are and what you have available. But what I wanted people to be all in on is you can influence change. If it's you and a coworker and you just want to make your department better or your shift better or in your community or in yourself, there's things that you can take from here and and just be all in by starting. And sometimes it's just starting with language and and that can be all in for somebody is taking that that one movement forward. So how can we all become then accidental DEI experts? That that was for me uh, the, the real giggle. I love that part of the title. How does that accidentally happen? So it actually, it, it, the, the term accidental expert actually comes from a very loving place. It, it's a very common term in tech where we have, there, there, will, there will be a need, a new thing. And somebody will go and, and do an online search and put together some resources and because they've done that, all of a sudden they are the expert 
and they are the go-to person on everything related to that topic. And they're like, I don't know anything more than you. I just did some research and they're like, you're the expert. And so when I was talking to people and, and working on this book, I, I would always ask them this curiosity, like, how did you, how did you come to be in this space? Mm-hmm. And universally, almost all of them said it was a complete accident. I was working on something and I was tasked with uh, leading our employee resource group, or this was not going well in my department and it was being, you know, exclusionary language. And so I, I wanted to change it. And so pretty soon they found themselves in that DEI expert space. And it also touches on, you know, we, we talk about experts and it's really, just, it's, it's degrees of understanding and degrees of knowledge, right? Nobody's the expert in everything. We do not have it figured out. And by the way, I believe that's a strong contributor to inclusion. You say, I'm not the expert in everything. I haven't figured everything out in particular as leader. And to share that very openly so other people have an opportunity and feel very free to share their views, their perspectives, their knowledge as well. And we make it a real teamwork or real collaboration. Absolutely. And it's always that I, I don't know. I need a minute to think about either think of process the answer because it's complex or I need to go educate myself. I need to find people who are do do have an expertise in that lived experience or that segment or that X, right? For those of you who want to become accidental experts in the field, it's actually a wonderful opportunity to notice again in yourself where you start to feel really uncomfortable around a topic of diversity, equity, inclusion. And when you feel uncomfortable and you're just with a person um, that perhaps uh, raised an issue or topic that gave you this feeling a wonderful way of learning in the space and seeing it as a learning is to ask those open questions help me understand you know um, I feel a bit insecure about this topic to be quite honest um I would love to learn more the moment you say it and you mean it something shifts in the relationship in the energy and in the mutual engagement around this topic and and that's just so encouraging it feels good and it comes back to our very basic needs of this human connection that that's the biggest advice i can i can share absolutely and it also op- no and yeah because it also opens up to i don't know your lived experience yeah and it's the very real i will never know your lived experience because I haven't had it. And it's not on that person to educate me. If they want to talk about it, that's fantastic. But it's not on them to educate me, but it's it's on me to acknowledge and verbalize it or express. I have no idea. And, and I want to know more so that I can do better, whatever that do better means. So what will book number two be about? Are you allowed to talk about that yet? I am. I'm very excited. It is a, because one of the questions I get a lot is around content review and how do you make your content more inclusive if it's a, you know, mundane policy document or an entire new global course that you're releasing or marketing campaign. And so it is a, it is a style guide that addresses, here's what you should be looking for. Here's how it can manifest. Here's how it can land. And, and really more around the, how do humans interpret information? How do we process information? Mm-hmm. And then suggestions on here's, instead of this, do this. And instead of this, try this. Or, you know, just giving different examples. And it's not about a judgment. It's, it's a nuanced yes and. Yes, your message is really good. And if you change 
these two words, or if you replace this image, here's how it would appeal and be more welcoming to a broader audience. Wow, I can't wait for that to be published. I'm definitely going to have a read through it. Yeah, very helpful. User, user friendly. I, I assume we can all take something away from it from the sounds of it. Absolutely. And it is not as an exhaustive list. I try to emphasize that as much as possible. I'm like, this is a point in time. This is what's known. So yeah. I will I will publish re- uh, updates and uh, as they come out. Jen, I know it's still very early for you and I appreciate your time. So, so I want to be respectful of it. Before I let you go, however, I have one more small area I would like to touch up on because we spoke in the beginning already a little bit about the LGBTQ plus community. Now, you have actually done research in that area, right? And I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about a why you chose to chose this as a research project and what you took away from it. Yeah, that was absolutely life-changing. So I was I, I was working on my doctorate and as part of my, I knew that I wanted to do something around the LGBTQ plus community. I didn't know what that was. And so I just, I, I let it kind of evolve and percolate. And I was about halfway through my program and there was yet another rash of adolescent suicides adolescents and 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 kids and it was either they were lgbtq plus or they were perceived to be and the bullying and and the incessant message from their environment that they were wrong or something else they were they were dying and so it crystallized for me i'm like kids are dying and and when they're not dying they're still struggling and they're still having these significantly higher rates of negative outcomes you know, higher rates of homelessness, suicide, substance abuse, all the things. And I went to look at the research and the research at that point in time was primarily grounding being LGBTQ plus as an inherent risk factor. So it was, it was positioned around if you were a queer youth, then you were at higher risk of this because you were a queer youth. And I, I like, we're looking at this the wrong way. And that immediately pivoted for me. I'm like, it's our queer kids are fine. It's the environment and the response of their environment mm-hmm. that either acerbates or mitigates or is effectively neutral to, to that risk. And so I had the complete honor of interviewing 11 people, all adults, and just had them tell me about what their experience was growing up as LGBTQ+. And just very open-ended and the stories that they shared with me, there were so many similarities. And, and this is a range of mid-20s to late-ish 40s, growing up in different places, some in the States, some outside the States. And the similarities around this feeling different, feeling like they missed out on a script that everybody else got someone and feeling like they were the only one. And that was so powerful for me. And 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 then just understanding. what they shared about the small influencing factors that contributed to their amazing healthy outcomes in adulthood. And it was almost universally one person. They had at least one person in their circle who, who believed in them and saw them and was there for them. And they felt supported by that one person. And that one person credit, they, they credited almost universally with changing their trajectory. And I, I realized I'm like, we need more people to be that one person. 
And if it's, you know, your kids, you're the cool aunt or uncle or sibling or whatever, if you're in a grocery store and you can model behavior that somebody can see and they realize they're not the only one and they realize that they don't have to be bullied, that is a splash and ripple effect in the universe. And so that was the reason that I started in this past and the reason that I am such an advocate for making change in organizations because we're not just one thing. We're not just employees, right? We go into the community, we have lives and we can be that one person. I had massive goosebumps just now. Before you said I it, still I thought tear oh. up when I when I think about the the interviews, I still tear up because just the the boldness and the vulnerability and courage that they had to share their stories with me. And that was the other thing is that I in the book, there are a series of narratives unrelated to the interviews that I did that people contributed. And I wanted people who never had to think about what it's like to move through the world as a queer person to read these stories and either see themselves somewhere in that story or or connect on that human level, Mm -hmm. Uh, because that's why I think we really get the change. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't want them, their stories to just end with me. It's not like I shared their stories, but I I want to use what they shared to make a difference. Wow. The only, the only thing I can add here is, um, you know, just to share with all the listeners, how can you be this person? Be the one. Be the one. Be the one, exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't just relate to the LGBTQ plus community. It relates to anybody. Because mm-hmm. we never know what's really going on and how people are feeling unless we we are curious and are there and listening. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. be each other's ally, really. Yeah, and it taps into a very human need. We just want to be seen for who we are. We want to be seen and valued for who we are. And, you know, we talk about people showing up authentically at work, but the other side of that is people have to be able and willing to view and experience people as they are. Nothing to add to that. Thank you so much. I'm thinking about their stories again. Seriously. Yes. It's, it's unbelievable. What if there wasn't this one person, you know, it's unbelievable. So I'm very happy they were there and they gave this or offered that change in their trajectory. And I'm pretty sure we can all be this person to somebody. So thank you. Oh, for have, and we may not even know it yet. That's what yeah. that's what I hold in my heart. I'm like you may have an influence on somebody and you'll never even meet them. Yeah. And that's cool. Thank you so, so much. Jen. Thank you. Before I let you go, um, please do share with the listeners where they can find out more about you and the upcoming book in particular. Yes, yes, yes. So there's nothing nothing for the, the, the sign-ups yet that is coming. I want to get a little closer on the date. But yes, so I do, I hang out a lot on LinkedIn. So Jenna Ryan PhD. My website, if you want to learn more about the type of work that I do, and there's resources available there as well, more details around the book, it is at uh, pagingdrjen.com. I'm always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I I love to talk to, I just love to talk to people about the space and and what they're working on and all the things. And she really means it seriously. So you have to take her up on it. I said, she, um, sorry, again, she, no, it's actually (laughs) my pronouns. I think are in my thing. So yes, it is she, she, her. (laughs) So um, take her up for it, you know, and have this conversation in particular, if you are curious, you feel like me sometimes a bit insecure about it. Jen is the woman to go to and uh, to talk about it. We can only learn from and with each other. So come on, 
Let's go for it. We are Bring going to publish. <laughs> we are going to publish all the links, obviously, as well in the show notes. So stay tuned; they will also be there. But you know what? Not many people can make me speechless. You achieved that on multiple occasions here today. So thank you so much for being you, for sharing those wonderful experiences and stories with us, and um, you know, making the whole topic around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So easy. It feels so much easier having talked to you. So thank you so, so much, Jen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Um, yes, it's been it's been truly my honor to be here. And to everybody out there, uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. We want to hear from you. Share your feedback, please, with us. And I'm wishing you a wonderful remaining week and look after yourselves and don't forget be that one person. Take good care. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.